Welcome, everybody, to our number five episode of the Law of Liberty podcast. I'm your host, Dave, and I'm sitting here with my co-host, Stratty. Stratty, how you been, man? Been very good. I've had a really fun week. I've got a lot done, but uh, been looking forward to this. Uh, how you, How have you been, Dave? I've been pretty good, man. Just moved into my new apartment. Uh, just started classes, so uh, looking forward to all the great new stuff I'm going to learn on my last year of law school, and uh, a little scared about everything that's going to come after that, but uh, excited too. You know, it's a it's a really exciting time of life. Well, while we're talking about learning. I guess that's a good way to bring in today's topic because I'm going to learn quite a bit about it. Uh, you have a little article that uh, you have presented to more scholarly uh, crowds in the past. Uh, and you want to talk about today for us, you know, laymen, us, you know, idiots of the land. So, uh, David, why don't you break down your little article and tell us what it's all about? Sure, sure. I'd be happy to. I guess I'll give the background behind my writing this paper and, and how I kind of got the idea for it and all that kind of stuff. So uh, last year, in my second year of law school, I took a class on blockchain technology and law. And so it was basically just a class going over what blockchain technology is and how the law is, you know, responding to it and trying to deal with it and what are some, you know, legal issues that are being brought up because of the growth of, of this new technology. And I've never been much of a tech guy myself. Um, I don't know too much about computer science or other kind of other kind of things like that. Um, but as a libertarian, I've been interested in, in blockchain and Bitcoin and other kind of things like that just because, you know, so many libertarians are interested in it and, and so many libertarians have been advocating for their use and, and arguing that they're going to give us a lot of really good uh, benefits. And so, yeah, I was interested in that topic. So I took the class. We talked about a lot of different aspects. But one thing we talked about was um, something called smart contracts and uh, how they, um, how the law and contract law in particular is handling what has uh, come to be known as smart contracts. And so I wrote this paper and presented it at the Austrian Student Scholars Conference, which is in Grove City College, which is where Jeff Herbener works. He runs that conference for students. And, uh, and Sean Rittenauer works there too. So that's where I met them. And I met some other people who I saw later at the Mises Institute this last summer. And so that was kind of my first dive into the more scholarly scene of the of the Austro libertarian movement, you know, after studying it for a number of years, that was kind of my first kind of contribution that I made. So I was really excited about it, and I'm really really happy with the results. So I'm hoping to share it with everybody, and and uh, maybe you know get some more people a little bit more knowledgeable about what's going on with contract law and all this blockchain stuff. But also you know you know maybe get some criticism, figure out where I went right, where I went wrong, you know, all that other kind of good stuff that goes into any scholarly endeavor. So in the class, we had a list of readings that we had to do. And one of the readings was a, a scholarly article, uh, which was released in the Duke uh, Law Journal. It was written by two scholars. Uh, last names were Werbach and Cornell. And the paper was called Contracts Ex Machina. 
And it was all about smart contracts and what they are, their nature, and, and how contract law applies to them and what kind of issues the new technology poses for contract law. And it was a really fantastic article. I, I didn't agree with everything that it said, but I agreed with a lot of what it said, and, and a lot of it really got me thinking more about the issues that are going into this. And one of the main things that they point out in the article that, that inspired my paper was they were talking about how um, smart contracts are a promiseless way to do trades with each other online. And so because, as we talked about before in our last episode, we're talking about how contract law, the traditional contract law is based on promises and that kind of theory, and the libertarian view that we espouse is not based on promises, I thought, oh, this is a really great opportunity for the libertarian contract theory to solve some of these issues that the traditional contract theory can't with smart contracts. And so I guess to make this more clear, I'll go a little bit into the, uh, into the technical aspects of blockchain and smart contracts and exactly what they are and then once we get that down, we can see a little bit more why this technology has posed a problem for the traditional promise-based contract theory. So before I do that, and also I will say that, you know, uh, it's been a little while since I've read my paper, and I'm kind of going off of memory a little bit here. So I'll say that if there's anything that doesn't quite make sense, I'm going to link to my paper in in our uh, show description. So if anybody wants a little bit more clarification on exactly what I mean, um, you can find it in my paper and you can read the paper. Um, and so you can get some clarification there. Um, so uh, yeah, just uh, keep an eye out for for any for that uh, any of you who are uh, interested in getting more or want some clarification, uh, go to the paper and and you can read it. And that's uh, that's there. I'm sure you'll get a. Uh, a much clearer uh, explanation than I've than I've provided here. Um, I'll turn it over to you real quick, and I'll just ask you: What are your understanding of blockchain and Bitcoin? Have you kind of been interested in this? I'm sure you know generally what they are, but is this something you've particularly been interested in or know a lot about? No, it's not something I'm either interested in or know a lot about. I'm not too good when it comes to tech type stuff. Uh, I'm interested in cryptocurrencies just because they are a currency that can be used to undermine the state, and I've written about that. Uh, that's about as far as I've gone with writing about that kind of stuff or as my knowledge or what I've espoused about those kind of things. So I'm sure I'll be learning a lot here about blockchain and smart contracts in general. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point because I, I think especially with my article, you don't necessarily need to be a tech junkie. To, to really get the overall point that I'm trying to make. So I think that's a really good thing because, like I said myself, I'm not much of a tech guy either. Um, but I understand the basics, and the basics is enough for us to kind of understand all of the issues um, that are going on with this. Um, so I'll dive in and just kind of explain for our audience who might not know um, particularly what, what a blockchain is and what a smart contract is. So a blockchain is basically a distributed database that records transactions of, of digital assets and information that occur on a network. Um, so 
when we say it's a distributed database, what that means is that it's a ledger, it's a ledger of information, and it's replicated and shared among all of the network's connected computer devices, which are called nodes. So if you connect your computer to the blockchain network and you create a node, then what happens is that you copy the blockchain, which is the ledger of information. It's just recorded data. And so you copy that onto your computer and then it's stored there. But every single other computer that's connected copies and stores it as well. So there's no centralized repository for this information of you know, what transactions took place at what time and when, were a Bit when was a Bitcoin created, other kind of things like that. So um, I think that this is one of the reasons why libertarians have been kind of drawn to um, blockchain because we believe in decentralization of, you know, political things uh, and other kind of things like that. You know, we don't like centralized currency. We don't like centralized politics, other kind of things like that. So the decentralized nature of the of the blockchain is something that I think libertarians naturally kind of kind of clung to. Um, and I think rightly so, because um, it, it definitely takes away control from a centralized authority to say, you know, what transactions took place or who owns who owns what or anything like that. And so it's a more it's a more community based way of of getting consensus about who owns what and who uh, who did what on the network. And so I think in that sense, it is it is uniquely um, libertarian. So. Yeah, there's no authoritative hierarchy. There's no single repository, um, and each node bears a uh, a unique public-private key pair. So basically, what that means is that the public key is basically what identifies the user, identifies the node, and that's what's used to verify, you know, by cross-referencing with the information on the ledger on the blockchain. It verifies that this node that this user, this account, has the ability to make transactions which they are um, claiming to make. So, you know, if you only have half of a Bitcoin, but you try to give somebody a full Bitcoin, then the public key is what will say, hey, you know, this public key is only connected to 0.5 Bitcoin on the chain, and therefore this transaction can't go through because they don't have the, uh, they don't have the Bitcoin to do it. And then the private key, it basically acts as a digital signature um, to authorize that it's actually the person who it's actually the person, the user in control of the node who's making that transaction. So, you know, when you make the node, you get this private key, and it's basically it's basically just like a password or something, you know, something akin to that um, that allows a kind of a security mechanism to make sure that. It is actually the person who made the account and, and, and stuff like that who's actually um, making these transactions. So, as I said before, the blockchain is a ledger. Each block consists of data concerning a set of transactions that occurred on the network, and it's placed in a temporally ordered list. And each block is identified by a unique cryptographic hash, which is just a, a tech, you know, a computer science term. And what that means is that the hash function is basically something that references previous or other data. And so when you attach this hash function to the block that you're that you're adding to the blockchain um, when a new block is made and then it record when a new Bitcoin is made and then it records 
uh, transactions that occurred, the hash function faces backwards and references the data that came before it. And so basically what that allows, it's, it allows for a immutability and security in the information. So if, say, somebody were to try to hack the blockchain or whatever and then change some information on a previous block, then all of the hash functions on the blocks ahead, because they're referencing back to that previous data, which has now been changed, that hash function isn't going to correspond to the changed data because the hash function is pointing to the original data. But now that it's changed, you can see that that data is no longer there and you can recognize almost immediately that the chain has been tampered with. And so this allows for a security mechanism to make sure that, you know, there's no fraud going on and that everything's going on is, is uh, everything going on is legitimate, not illegitimate. And so back to the decentralization point, like I said, it's more of like a community consensus way. So because every single node has this information, this ledger copied onto it, every single node in order to move forward with the network has to agree on future changes that get made to it because you're not just changing one source, one repository of the information. You have to change every single copy of that information that's on every single node connected to the network. And so the way that the blockchain handles this is what's called a consensus mechanism. And Bitcoin has its own, a different blockchain called Ethereum has its own, and, and, and other kind of blockchains have their own kind of ways that are just structured to the specific needs of the needs and desires of the community who's using this particular uh, blockchain. But basically, these consensus mechanisms are just ways that the community reaches agreement on what transactions have occurred, what changes we're going to make to our ledgers that we have copied on our on our uh, computers, and this way we can just reach agreement on everything that's going on. Uh, so before I move on to smart contracts, I'll just uh, ask you, does this all making sense? Uh, is this clear to you and you're kind of getting the gist of what's going on with the tech? I'm getting I'm getting the gist. Like I, I'm not picking up all the nuances, but I'm getting like where it's transparent, how it's libertarian, how it's broken apart, so everyone has kind of their own say. And I, I get it. I get it. So that's all really, really important stuff for us to understand before we kind of get into the legal aspects of of what's going on here. And so next, I'll explain what a smart contract is. Now, Bitcoin was the first blockchain that was ever released, and it was a uh, it was an ingenious um, idea, ingenious invention that the the creator Satoshi Nakamoto. I think it was in two thousand and eight when it was originally released. But as the times gone by, people have been working with the baseline blockchain idea, and they've been trying to build off of it, make it more complex, and, and be able to expand it to many other different uses, uh, and you know just to be able to do more things with it. And so this is what a different blockchain called Ethereum is trying to do. Ethereum was, was, was made by uh, a guy named Vitalik Buterin. And what they're basically trying to do is to use a different kind of language to, to make a blockchain in order to make more complex kind of transactions. And so I'm, I'm not too knowledgeable on the text, on the, specifics of this kind of tech aspect of the difference here but um, Bitcoin uses what's called a Turing incomplete language and Ethereum uses what's called a Turing complete language 
And like I said, I'm not I'm not too knowledgeable on on the tech specifics, but basically what it the main point, the main takeaway is that because Ethereum uses the Turing complete um, language, it allows for more complex kind of transactions, whereas Bitcoin is a little bit more truncated. Ethereum allows for more complexity in the conditions and other kind of things that go into making transactions. And so this is what allows for what has come to be known as smart contracts. Now, a smart contract is a user-defined computer program which runs on top of a blockchain network. So similar in the way that like your, your internet browser um, rests on top of the baseline internet protocol, so it's like you can go onto the same internet, but like with these different browsers, because these browsers sit on top of the baseline of the internet. It's kind of similar in the way that you have the baseline blockchain, but then on top of it, you can put these user-defined programs on top. And this is, these are what's called smart contracts. So it's computer code, which is used to facilitate, execute, and enforce user-defined terms of an agreement between parties on a blockchain. And so basically what that means is that you set up the smart contract, you put in the code, and so it creates conditions that if they are met, then the transaction specified will go through. The smart contract will execute and then automatically move the, the, uh, the digital assets from one account to the other. And so it's basically just a very efficient and practical way for um, these users of this network to make transactions with each other, to set their own conditions for these transactions, um, and, and to do so in a very efficient way, which, auto which executes automatically, you know, with the speed of, you know, with the speed of computers. Um, and so I think even before... So I, oh, yeah. It really is like a smart contract because it's smart enough to have a mind of its own and realize like, okay, that these terms have been met and these terms have been met, therefore initiate or, you know, unlock, whatever. But is that, is that, am I, am I getting that right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and, um, I would say, I will say before moving on that, um, like the most simple smart contracts, I wouldn't necessarily have a mind of their own because they're not like AI, but all of this stuff has interesting questions with AI, um, you know, whether or not you could put artificial intelligence programs on top of blockchains to do stuff, uh, to do kind of stuff like that. And that's a very important question that's like on the frontier of this technology. So maybe we'll talk about that um, a little bit at the end of the episode because I do have, um, I, I think I briefly touch on it in my, in my paper as a, a area that needs future research. Um, to build off of what I'm trying to do with my paper. Uh, but yes, you, you're correct there. Um, it takes in information, and then once the information, that is the condition for the execution, are met, then it will say, oh, the information's there, execute, and then it does the deal for the parties who, who set it up on the chain. So, yeah, smart contracts can be constructed to adjust their execution based on information stored on the blockchain, um, or they can use um, third-party information from a trusted source that the parties would agree to. And this source is what's termed an oracle. And so basically that would mean that if you want your smart contract to be conditioned on some information that's not stored on the blockchain, then the oracle would be a third party who would inject that information 
into the program and then then it would know oh execute so i guess an example would be you know if you're maybe doing gambling sports gambling on a blockchain and you make a bet with somebody i'll give you one unit of this digital currency if the mets win their next baseball game well the information of whether or not the mets won isn't going to be on the blockchain so this third party the oracle would take that information um, and then inject it into that, and then it, and then the blockchain would, or the smart contract would see, oh, the Mets won, execute the transaction, you know, something something like that. Uh, again, this is just another way that the basic blockchain idea is being made more complex and spreading out and being able to deal more with real-world situations, not just with information on the blockchain itself. So this is just another way that this inf- that this technology is is growing and and becoming more integrated with the actual. Uh, real world events, which is which is very interesting, and and I think holds a lot of uh, potential uh, for uh, uh, for the economy in the future. And so now we get to the really kind of important point, which is the basis of what we'll build off in, into the more legal aspects of things. Is that smart contracts they automate the execution of a contract on behalf of the signatories. So this is why. Like I mentioned before, with the Werbach and Cornell article, where they were saying that smart contracts are promiseless, this is the main point because when the smart contract gets the information, triggering it to execute, it will automatically execute. So when the conditions are met, it will automatically do it. Now, as we were talking about before in our last contracts episode, when you're making a contract under the traditional contract law paradigm with uh, the promises and, and all that kind of stuff, when one of the parties meets their condition of the, in the contract, meets, meets their condition, the, the, the transfer or the deal or whatever isn't automatically done, right? So let's say one person makes a contract with another, person A and person B, and then person B meets their conditions to receive something from person A, well, the money in person A's wallet doesn't just automatically transfer to the other person when they meet their conditions under the contract. There's a period of time there where the conditions are met, and then the other party has their own duty to fulfill the contract because the conditions have been met. But with smart contracts, that's all thrown out of the window because immediately when the con- when the conditions are met it automatically executes the transfer and so it's kind of taking away this promise aspect of the contract because person a said to person b if you do these things if you meet this condition then i promise you that i'll pay you and then that promise part is the um, the period of time when the condition after the conditions were met but before the payment was made but this is all thrown out with smart contracts so this is what Werbach and Cornell were pointing out in their paper and saying this is a problem for the for the traditional contract law because we have this new way that people are making deals with each other and it's growing and it's becoming a bigger part of the economy and I think it's going to continue to become a bigger part of the economy but it's but it's eschewing the promises that our entire contract theory is based on and so this is a big problem that the contract law theory as it stands right now basically on its own terms, can't handle sufficiently uh, and satisfactorily this new technology. 
this was what really um, inspired me to write my paper. Because when I saw this problem, I immediately just thought, well, what if we had a contract theory that wasn't based on promises from the first place? And this would fix the problem. And that's the title transfer Rothbardian theory that we've been talking about um, so much in our show. And so basically what I try to do with my paper is to show that the title transfer theory, the promiseless theory of contract, is better fit to handle smart contracts than the traditional theory. And that if we were to accept the title transfer theory, then we would get much better a much better synergy between the law and the way that these smart contracts work uh, than the traditional law can offer us, um, not only because of the fact that the title transfer theory is just generally the correct theory of contract, but also because it's because um, the nature of smart contracts and the nature of the title transfer theory coincide with each other uh, very, very nicely. And so I have one more point I want to make before we get into, in, into more, and then I'll turn it over to you. Um, to kind of uh, see if you have any thoughts on on, on this issue, the, the issue that the traditional contract theory can't handle these promiseless uh, smart contracts. And the point I'll make is that the smart contract term is a bit of a misnomer because the smart contract isn't the contract in the strictest legal sense because the contract is the transfer of the title to the assets, to the property. The smart contract is just a computer program. It's just a means of facilitating the actual contract. And so I just want to make that clear for our listeners because the, the fact that we call it a smart contract, that the word contract is in the term that we use, it can lead to some confusion. So I just want to make very clear that all a smart contract is is just a computer program that we use to facilitate contracts. It's not a contract in itself. Um, so from there, um, I'll turn it over to you and just ask you, do you have any kind of thoughts um, on uh, this kind of this this issue, this tension between smart contracts and the promise theory and some maybe problems that might um, come because of it? When I when I hear about the, the contract theory that you're proposing, I, I like it a lot better than I like our traditional contract theory. So in my head, I'm thinking this should be just what replaces it. But also the. <laughs> The people who are kind of in charge of, you know, de facto in charge of making what is what is and what isn't when it comes to contract theory, it will be a while before they adopt the smart contract theory. So I can see where that problem lies and how uh, with the advancement of things and where society's going to, there will be a lot of problems in the realm of contracts itself just because of that alone. So that's my only thought on that, really. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think you make up a, a really good practical point that it's the 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 chance that the title transfer theory will be adopted is slim to I mean none, you know, basically at least in the near future. So, you know, we're gonna have to deal with that because the the smart contracts I mean, nothing's gonna stop these people from uh, you know, trying to make it better and move the tech forward. That's just what humans do. Um, so yeah, that's an interesting that's an interesting practical point that we need to be aware of. You know, even if the theory that I'm lying out is is really really strong, you know, um, just the 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 fact that we live under a state, you know, they're not going to give away their statist uh, their statist theories. But uh, you know, uh, we can't make it to point B without starting at point A, and point exactly. A is theory. So that's what we're trying yeah. to do. Exactly. So 
I've been just kind of skimming over the title transfer theory stuff in this episode because we talked about that a lot in the last episode. We gave our justification there. So if anybody's listening to this episode without having listened to that before, I'll just say, you know, maybe just pause this one and go back and listen to that and get a better idea of what the title transfer theory is because I want to dive in now to three specific ways that the title transfer theory is better fit for smart contracts. So the first point that I have and the biggest point is kind of something that I've already been saying, and it's just that because neither the title transfer theory nor smart contracts rely on promissory obligations, they're naturally congruent, right? There's just a natural symmetry there between the fact that the title transfer theory uh, doesn't rely on promises and the fact that smart contracts don't rely on promises. So just that fact alone, you know, is just like a baseline congruence that the that these two things have and I think shows that the title transfer theory is better able to handle smart contracts. Yeah, so while the title transfer theory holds that contract that a contract has not been made until actual title to property has been transferred, not just possession, but title to property has been transferred. Smart contracts execute the transference of possession to digital assets recorded on a blockchain without parties making or relying on promissory obligations of future performance. So that's what I said before. The future performance aspect after the conditions have been met is thrown out the window. Um, so therefore, although smart contracts are not actually contracts in the strictest sense, their promiseless make, nature makes them more in line with the title transfer theory. Uh, so that's, al that's already what we've been kind of talking about. Um, so I, uh, I'll move over to the next one. Well, real um, quick. I, well, oh, yeah, me, yeah. What do you, what do you think? Because I, I do want to say something after you kind of put it that way and I think about it. You know, obviously, I'd already said before that I can see smart con contracts as being as more efficient and can get things done better and, you know, better for the people who are involved in this contract. It's kind of telling then that, you know, how I said the de facto people who are in charge of what is contract theory and how it's used within our state. It's kind of telling that they won't probably pick that smart contract theory up because obviously they have kind of a thing to gain from the way the contract theory goes now with how inefficient it can be and where they have to butt in and make themselves felt and where they have to play referee they kind of like that they don't they must not like that this smart contract theory will take them out and basically not make them any money in the sense of hey we're gonna play referee in this little contract dispute so it, that is telling there you know and that's probably another reason why they won't it won't catch on for a while but like you said, we need point A to get to point B. So that's just something we probably need to point out and and put out there so people like think about like, oh, it's not just because they're ignorant. The state is never ignorant. Uh, they have a reason they like what they use now. They have a reason they probably don't like what we're proposing. So I just wanted to get that out there. Yeah, I, I that's a really, really good point. I'm glad you said that because, yeah, like you said, the fact that the state uses this promise-based theory it allows them to inject themselves more into contracts to change the terms of the deal based on their, you know, preferred views, you know, and, and it's kind of something we mentioned in our contract episode. The last one is that basing contracts and property gives a lot less power to the state or to any judicial institution, I guess, to, you know, control terms of contracts and other kind of things like that. And so I think that's one of the reasons, in addition to the decentralized nature of smart contracts and other things like that, that that libertarians have been so attracted to blockchain and stuff is because of the fact that 
we're making these deals and they're executing automatically and all this stuff. So it kind of it, it's trying to make deals with each other without the state being able to get involved. And I think just the fact that the state contract theory doesn't align with smart contracts nature is is kind of proof of that fact that this is a way that the the statist way of doing contracts is being undermined by this technology. Um, and so obviously the state's going to try is it going to try to get involved and they and they are definitely trying to get involved. Uh, we learned a lot about that in the class. Uh, but I think that's a really, really good point. But also I will say that I think it's a point which can lead to confusion. Um, and in my research for this for this paper, I read a paper by a by a scholar named Max Raskin, and he he did a paper about, smart contracts and contract contract theory and other kind of things like that. I can't remember the name of it right now. Um, but he uh, he talks about Rothbard, and, and I think he mentions David Friedman too, and I think he, he mentions other uh, libertarian ANCAPs and why libertarians have been attracted to smart contracts and, and, and blockchain. And one of the things he says is basically that the libertarians want to do these contracts and want to make these deals and stuff without... Uh, without state intervention or without legal intervention. And so I think this is an important point because I, I mentioned this in my paper. And what I basically say is that it's a misunderstanding of libertarianism to say that we don't want any kind of legal system or any kind of legal enforcement. We definitely don't want statist uh, enforcement and other kind of things like that. Um, but the way Raskin kind of frames it is that you know these libertarians just want nothing at all and that's not correct and so i try to counter that in my paper and this ties into the next point uh that i want to make the next reason of why uh the title transfer theory is is better fit for smart contracts which is because we talked about how the title transfer theory gets rid of fraud uh, I mean, it, it, it gets rid of fraud in the sense of it, it punishes fraud, right? So you can't defraud somebody in order to get possession of their property without title because if you defraud them, you didn't meet the conditions of the contract. So you're in possession of stolen goods. And so the title transfer theory does prohibit fraud. And it also has a product warranty aspect to it where, you know, like I said in, a, in our previous episode, if you want to buy a TV from somebody and you give them money for that TV, but they send you scrap metal, then they breach their product warranty because the whole idea was that they were saying to you, part of the condition of the deal is that you get a TV up to certain specifications, whatever you know the, the parties say to each other or write in the contract or, or you know something along those lines. So there is still room here for contractual enforcement and for legal adjudication in this space even within the title transfer theory, right? And so I think that this is something that Raskin missed was that he didn't really understand the full title transfer theory and the full the full breadth of it and how it would actually apply to you know enforcing contract law in a libertarian um, non-statist legal system because he was just kind of saying they don't want any enforcement at all. And what I kind of say is that, no, that's not what they're saying. They just don't want the state. And so... I do think that the title transfer theory's prohibition of fraud and its product warranty aspect do justify ex post adjudication of smart contract disputes. Now, 
this gets into something that I think Werbach and Cornell talk a little bit too in their article is that the way that contracts work now, contract law enforcement um, and breach of contract claims is that there's an ex-ante enforcement of contract law. And by that I mean before any t title is transferred or before the deal goes through or anything like that, if you breach your promises, then you can still have the legal system come and either make you pay damages or, or do specific performance. So that's before any title transfer has occurred. So that's an ex-ante kind of thing. An ex-ante means beforehand. But under the title transfer theory, contract disputes can only come to court ex post. And by that, I mean you only can do that after possession to something has gone through. So under, under the regular traditional theory of contracts, you can sue for breach of contract before possession to title to some property has been exchanged because the promise has been broken. But under the title transfer theory, you can't do that. You can only bring someone to court under a contract after possession has been transferred and then you can say, well, you know, I gave him possession, but he didn't meet the conditions, the conditions, so there's no title. So he's in possession of, of stolen goods. And so this is another symmetry between the title transfer theory and the smart contracts, because as I said before, the smart contract is automatic. The conditions are met, it goes through. So even under the traditional legal system, Smart contract disputes to say, hey, you know, we set up the code wrong or we had we wrote down a separate contract on paper, which was which was our actual contract. And then we were just using the smart contract as a means to see that contract through. But we set up the code wrong. It didn't go through the way we wanted. So the actual conditions of the actual contract weren't met. The the conditions for the smart contract to execute were met, but those didn't exactly align with the conditions for our actual contract. And so therefore, you know, there's implicit theft. There's there's no actual contract there. The possession to my digital assets was transferred to this other per person, but the conditions the conditions weren't met. And so this is another symmetry is that under the title transfer theory, these contract disputes can only arise ex post but because of the practical aspects of smart contracts, those disputes can only arise ex post. And so again, we can see that there's this symmetry there. And also, as I said before, the title transfer theory would allow for legal adjudication in that kind of sense where, you know, the conditions of the actual contract weren't the same as the conditions of the smart contract. And therefore, you know, there's a legal dispute there that needs to get resolved. And so I think that this is another just way that we can see that the title transfer theory and the libertarian legal theory doesn't lead to chaos. It has a robust framework for handling these disputes, and it aligns perfectly with the nature of smart contracts. All right, so this is the final point that I have. And the final point that I have is that this is something that we mentioned. Uh, again, we mentioned in our, in our contracts episode, um, and I'd, I'd like to reiterate it here, is that even though libertarians are all about private property and homesteading and self-ownership, you know, that's all private, private contracts and all that kind of stuff. There is an important public aspect to private property. And by that, I mean, if you're going to go into court and claim that you own something, then you have to have some proof that you are the just owner, that you have the best claim to the property 
the best claim compared to anybody else who is who is claiming title to the property. And so there's a public aspect there that's publicly viewable, publicly provable, and what Hoppe and Kinsella call it is an objective link. There's an objective link between you and that property that you can show to the world, you can show to the legal system, hey, I have a better claim to this than anybody else. So even though it's private property, it has an indispensable public aspect. And so, again, I think this shows why the blockchain um, and smart contracts is very in line with this property theory and with this contract theory is because, as I talked about before, because of the cryptographic hash functions, the blockchain is immutable. Um, not fully immutable. There are forks and there's you know practical problems that come into that, and that's very technical, and I don't want to get too into that here. But you know, for all intents and purposes, it's basically you know you there's a mechanism there to know who owns what, what did we agree to as a community? What did we publicly agree to as a group? Who owns what? And that's the objective link aspect there. And so it's immutable. We, we, you know, we can trust it, but there's also the consensus mechanism. We agreed that this person made this transaction, that this person owns this Bitcoin or whatever. And so the, establishing the objective link between the owner and the property is uh, kind of ingrained in the very nature of the of the blockchain itself and as i've said this is an important aspect of the title transfer theory and so we can kind of see that the blockchain allows for this objective link element of property and uh and and contracts to be uh borne out uh and to to work out very well and so those are my big three points of why the title transfer theory is better fit for smart contracts. And I think that it's really, really important at this time to lay all of this out because, you know, we're living in an age of increased, uh, you know, increased state power, increased uh, globalization of, of state power. And there are, you know, many uh, states and, and, and statist-born international institutions and stuff who are, who are attempting to leverage blockchain technology and other kind of things like that um, for their own, you know, anti-libertarian ends. And so I think that now it's high time for libertarians to try to reclaim the blockchain space uh, for themselves because, you know, libertarians were kind of the ones who really, from the very beginning, were touting it and saying that this is a great thing and using it. And over the years, a lot more people who are not libertarians have come into the fray and they're using these technologies too. But it's still a fact that, you know, the crypto anarchists and the libertarians were kind of the ones who who really, really at the very beginning uh, started uh, advocating for this stuff. And so I think that, you know, we don't want to lose that libertarian kernel in that blockchain community and movement. And I kind of see that we are, in a sense, maybe losing that. So I think that that's another reason why uh, my paper is quite timely. And I hope that it can, you know, uh, kind of reclaim the blockchain space for libertarians. Well, before we go, you wanted to talk about something on artificial intelligence, though. And I wanted to really get into that because that's something I was kind of interested in. So I want you to talk about because in my mind, I mean, artificial intelligence has always been kind of a scary thing. Because like what, where are the limits drawn? You know, it's something that humans, you know, as a whole, lack, lack so much knowledge about. 
However, I can see if, you know, someone was able to program artificial intelligence just to a point to where it was able to not necessarily get smarter from what it does, but just be able to do things as is. I think that'd be great for a blockchain technology in order for, say, like me and you, we need to get something done, but we can we can program some artificial intelligence to do it for us. And we know that artificial intelligence won't expand elsewhere. And that means you can go off and do something else and work on and then, you know, increase our productivity. I, I think that's a great idea. But, you know, obviously, you know more about this. So I want you to kind of go into it and put some thoughts out there. Well, yeah, I, th I think you're right. I don't know too much about artificial intelligence myself. I don't know much about the tech. I don't really know too much about the state of it. But the reason I brought it up was because at the end of my paper, I give a list of possible future research that needs to be done in order to apply um, some of the ideas in my paper to more specific contract law doctrines and how those doctrines might need to change or have exceptions made to them to the blockchain smart contract context. And one of the things we talked about in the class, and this is another point of how blockchains are becoming much more complex and people are trying to push the boundaries of what this technology can do, and it's something what's, that's called a decentralized autonomous organization. Now, what a decentralized autonomous organization is, is basically a web of smart contracts on a blockchain which are continually interacting with each other feeding off of each other, giving information to each other, and automatically executing transactions. It's basically kind of like a, a corporate body of smart contracts that acts automatically on a blockchain to make transactions and do other kind of things like that. And so that's why artificial intelligence is really, really interesting for that issue, because if you were to inject some type of artificial intelligence into these into this web of smart contracts, then you would have basically a computer program that is engaging in the economy and making transactions based on its own intelligence and based on its information that it's gathering from the blockchain, from other sources and kind of stuff like that. So that's why I brought it up. It's a really interesting issue because Rothbard says in Ethics of Liberty that property rights can only be accorded to living human beings. So that's why he's against the idea of duties which run with the land and other kind of things like that because if there's some land but a person isn't occupying or owning it, then there's no there's no property title there there's no contract there because property titles can only be owned by human beings so the so one of the issues is could an artificial intelligence like this kind of own property or would it kind of be a uh just a uh, a functionary or an agent for the people who set it up and they are considered the property owner, but the artificial intelligence is just kind of like a tech uh, mechanism uh, to manage uh, their property for them. I think that latter view is, is, is more correct uh, just because I do think that property rights, you know, can only be accorded to living human beings. But then it also just kind of gets into the issue of, you know, it's like if an artificial intelligence is conscious, then like, does it have rights? Does it have property rights? And, you know, that's an issue that I, really don't know much of an answer about but that's so that's why i put it in my future research section it's something that we need to think about more um but uh uh does that kind of explanation give you a few more thoughts on kind of yeah. the problems going on here yeah i just was curious about that uh something i was interested in i'm gonna have to give this a read though because i i did pick up on what you were talking about and 
I'm able to now, like, basically, if someone was to ask me, well, is there any other way we could go about doing this contract system? Then I could tell them about smart contracts. But it is something I need to be interested in more because, uh, you know, like I like you said, with the way society and the world is going, this is something that is going to be adapted and adopted by many people. Before we get away from the from the 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 decentralized autonomous organization issue, um, we talked a little bit in our last episode about corporations in general, and that's just kind of an issue that comes into that question is like basically erecting a corporation by using smart contracts and artificial intelligence and other kind of stuff like that. And so, you know, just kind of the question is if corporations are illegitimate under libertarian property and contract theory, how would that play into the issue of the legal standing of a decentralized autonomous organization, a corporate entity that was erected using smart contracts and stuff. So that's just another issue that I don't have necessarily a clear answer on because it was in the last part of my paper, uh, but it's definitely something to uh, think about um, in trying to expand these theories into this uh, in this space. Well, someday we got to do an episode just talking about corporations because I have a, basically I'll lay it out real quick, but I don't think corporations would really exist if it wasn't for the state. So whenever people use corporations as an argument against, you know, free market, right-wing libertarianism, I simply explain to them, like, a lot of those corporations only exist because of regional monopolies given to them by the state, monopolies on the market given given to them by the state, certain regulations they can easily hop over, which they lobby for, so... Uh, or subsidies that keep them alive even then when they aren't doing good. So I have all I have a whole thing about uh, corporations, but we'll get into that in another episode. Yeah, I'll briefly say on that. I don't think that corporations wouldn't exist without the state, but I definitely think that you're right that there's a lot of corporations, like like specific corporations which exist now which probably wouldn't exist with the state because yeah. like you said they lobby they they get special privileges they're able to exist because of those those favors but i think that in general i think corporations would be legitimate i just think that their nature their legal standing their special privileges all those kind of bad problems with corporatist you know, mercantilist, protectionist, you know, special favors and stuff, those would kind of go away. But I think corporations as such would still be, you know, something that could occur in a libertarian legal system. Uh, but like you said, I think that's a that's a topic for another whole episode yeah. we do on corporations and teasing all into those those different things. So I want to handle a few objections that I dealt with in my paper to this theory. And and the first big one something that I uh, that I saw um, Stefan Kinsella make. Now, it was at, I think it was at the last Property and Freedom Society conference, uh, which is HAPA's um, intellectual society in Turkey. They do a conference every year, and they post the videos on YouTube. Kinsella's given a number of, of talks there. And um, I think it was at the last one or the one before. It was pretty recent. And he gave a talk about Bitcoin, and he was specifically was talking about Bitcoin, but, you know, I guess just blockchain and it applies to blockchain and, and, and blockchain based assets in general. And because, as we know, um, Stefan Kinsella is very anti IP, you know, he's kind of the the guru, as it were, of, of anti intellectual property arguments in, in modern libertarianism. So he basically argues in in this talk he gave at, at the Property and Freedom Society that. Bitcoin and other crypto assets are not 
ownable under Rothbardian property theory, that under this legal theory, you can't own them in the sense of you can own other scarce physical resources. And basically, he makes his his standard IP argument, um, which I agree with, the, the, the anti-IP argument, and he basically just says that the blockchain is just a ledger, and the ledger is just information. And as I said before, it's all decentralized, so every single computer can copy that information. And so he says that basically because it's just, you know, the Bitcoins are just information on a ledger, then then they're not ownable because they're not scarce, right? And so when I first heard this argument, I was like, oh no, like, is he right? Because if he's right, then basically my entire theory of applying this property theory to the smart contracts just implodes, right? It's, it's just done for if he's right. And I don't think he's right. I think he's wrong here. And here's why. There was a, a book released, I think a few years ago, by uh by a guy named Conrad Graf and he makes an argument for why uh, bitcoin and and crypto assets blockchain based assets are ownable under Rothbardian property theory and I will say that I actually didn't become aware of his book and his arguments until after I had basically finished my paper. I was in the final stages of editing it before turning it in for the class um, when I found the paper. So I do cite to it in my paper, but I didn't really get into the meat of it until after I had turned the paper in for a grade just because I didn't find it until, you know, like a day or two before I had to turn it in. But he and I more or less make the same kind of argument for why it is ownable under the Rothbardian property theory. Um, his is a little bit more robust than mine because he wrote an entire book about it. I, mine was only, you know, the one the one section in my paper. But my from my understanding of what his argument is, he and I more or less independently came up with this same uh, objection to Kinsella. And basically my argument goes like this, is that even though the ledger information is not ownable, because it's just information, it can be copied, uh, and everything like that. Even though that's not ownable, that information isn't ownable, there is still a rivalrous aspect to the use of Bitcoin and other crypto assets on, on blockchains, right? So, so the way Graph explains it is that we talk a lot about scarcity, as being the basis of property rights, right? Because things are scarce, we can have conflict over them, and because we can have conflict over them, we need property rules in order to avoid or resolve those conflicts. So what he says is that he takes, he applies Mises and the, the kind of Misesian view of action of what goods are to try to resolve this. And so what Mises kind of talks about in human action is that even if something is scarce, it's not an economic good and therefore not something that property rights has to deal with unless it's the subject of human action. So take, for instance, a star that's 100 million light years away from Earth in the galaxy or in the universe, right? That star is scarce. It's, it's finite. There's not... 
an infinite amount of star material there, right? But even though it's scarce, it's not the subject of human action because, you know, we're not dealing with it. We're not trying to use it. We're not trying to appropriate it to to use in, in human life and in society. And so that star isn't an economic good in that sense. And so basically what Graf says is that scarcity is basically a a uh a, an aspect of physical things in our world which we do need property for that's the aspect of them which makes them rival right we can have conflicts over them they're rivalrous the scarcity makes them rivalrous but it's the rivalrousness which is the key to the needing the property rights uh in order to avoid the conflicts right because if it's scarce but not rival then there's there's no need for the property rights. And that's the example of the star. The star is scarce, but there's no rivalrousness because human beings aren't aren't using it as an as an object of human action. And so I think that that framework better deals with the Bitcoin and digital assets kind of context of whether or not they're ownable. Because yeah, maybe the ledger information isn't scarce, but because of the nature of the blockchain there's still rivalrous. There is still rivalrousness in the use and the alteration of that information, right? So if I take an idea from your head, you still have that idea in your head. So I didn't take it from you. It's not rivalrous and it's not scarce. So therefore, there's no property there. But with a Bitcoin, I can't take a Bitcoin from you without at the same time taking away your ability to use that Bitcoin. So the Bitcoin is just information on the ledger, but only a specific key, only a specific node, only a specific user tied to it can alter it and change it and alter that information. So even though the information itself isn't scarce, the ability to alter the information is rivalrous. And therefore, there's a property rights... Uh, there's a role for property rights there. And so that's why I think that Kinsella gets it wrong on this issue is because if another person were to somehow, you know, hack a, hack a blockchain and take somebody's Bitcoin, then the person they've taken it from can no longer alter that information. Their ability to alter the blockchain has been diminished by that amount. And so therefore, there's a rivalrous aspect there, and it's a subject of human action. And so therefore, I do think that these assets are economic goods subject to uh, Rothbardian property theory. And I'll say, though, so that's the, that's the strong argument for that. And I also advance a weak argument, and I just kind of say that if you don't agree with all that, then still... Some blockchains and some governments, I think Sweden is one, there's some governments who have been using blockchain to record uh, titles to land. So they're basically using these ledgers to record uh, who owns what land and what land transfers occur. So even if you don't think that that information or that recording is, is rivalrous and subject to property theory as, it, as such, it's still linked to a scarce physical good which would be subject to property rights. And therefore, you kind of vicariously inject the property rights 
issues into the the blockchain space because the blockchains are denoting title to actual scarce physical uh, resources. So, you know, either if you take the strong argument or the weak argument, I definitely take the strong argument, but either either one which you take, I think that there's still a role that property rights has to play within the 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 uh, blockchain space with the with the crypto assets and and other kind of things like that. Yeah, I mean that makes sense to me the way you put it out there. At first, I kind of saw what concealment meant, but after you laid things out, I, I get it. Are there any, there are other objections though, right? Some some writers have argued that the consensus mechanisms and the immutability of the con of the blockchain, which I which we've mentioned, are not enough, are not re- reliable enough to adequately meet the objective link element of the property to the digital assets. And so what they what they say is kind of like the, they call it the garbage in garbage out problem. And by that we mean that if you set up a blockchain but at the outset the titles to the assets that that you're putting in there like I said before, say you have uh, titles to land and then you start the blockchain and you inject into it a starting point of who owns what land. Well, if that original information of who owns what that you're putting onto the blockchain, if that in itself is wrong, then the blockchain is going to move forward as it would, but it's going to be moving forward based on this incorrect premise that this person owns this thing. And so this is kind of a problem that some legal theorists have brought up to say, you know, it's not trustworthy enough um, on its own to uh, to to figure out who owns what um, digital assets or who owns what assets that these that these digital tokens are um, are denoting. And so, because of this, they say we need other institutions to provide means for detecting, deterring, and and punishing fraud, and to figure out who actually owns what and other kinds of things like that. And uh, I totally agree. Uh, I totally agree with this um, that we do need these that the these other institutions because uh, blockchains are just made by people, and people are not perfect. And computer language is just a language made by people, and as we know, language is ambiguous. So I think that they do have a bit of a point here, and I think it's correct. There are, there are ambiguities that can arise even in the co- computer code and and the the blockchain and other kind of things like that. But in Ethics of Liberty, Rothbard, he talks about how we have a property theory framework of how to figure out who owns what at the outset of a libertarian legal system. And so because this formulation is part of the property theory undergirding the title transfer theory, applying the theory provides this ready formulation that Rothbard gives to figure out who owns what. It gives us this, this is something that we can use as a baseline to solve these issues of erecting a blockchain and figuring out who actually owns what at the outset so that we can avoid this garbage in garbage out problem so i think that this objection does have a point but i think that rothbard gives us the the framework for an answer to it and so i think that's an important point uh to make in my paper, I declined to to go into exactly how this would work because every blockchain is different and, and this things are basically changing. But I think it's sufficient enough for my purposes to just say that this framework is there to figure out at the outset, you know, who owns what and, and how we can move forward from that starting point. 
Um, so I have just a few more points I want to make um, just to mention um, uh, suggestions for future research and uh, things that we can, things that we need to work forward with by building off of what I've done with my paper. Uh, we talked about the decentralized autonomous organizations, uh, but after that, I also mentioned some how some legal doctrines in contract law might need to be changed or or altered in order to handle this uh, smart contract context. One of them is something we talked about in our last episode, which was the parole evidence rule. You remember that, Strati? Yeah, I do. Yeah, so uh, I'll reiterate, the parole evidence rule is basically saying that if the parties put down on a piece of paper what the terms of their contract are, then other oral evidence before or after the consummation of the contract is not going to be taken into consideration in determining the terms of the contract. Now, this is really, really, really interesting in the smart contract context because usually with regular contracts, we'll have one sheet of paper with the terms of the contract signed by the parties, and those are the terms that the parole evidence rule will enforce um, over any other oral evidence. But with smart contracts, it's interesting because let's say, as we said, as I kind of alluded to before, you could have a situation where you have a written contract on a piece of paper, and then you try to use the smart contract to execute your conditions on that, uh, of that contract that you've written down. But the smart contract has its own computer code, which is written, in a sense, on the, on the network. It's uploaded, and, and that's there. You can look at it and see that. And so the parole evidence rule was formulated in a situation where you're only going to have the one written contract. But now the smart contract comes in, and we have this second written aspect. You could call it a document, I guess. But the second written thing, which is the code of the smart contract, right? And so if you had a situation where the where the conditions of the written contract and the conditions of the smart contract don't align, well, then how are you supposed to apply the parole evidence rule there, right? Because are you going to say, okay, we're only going to take in the terms of the written contract? Or are you going to say, we're only going to take into consideration the terms of the smart contract because both of them were written down and assented to by the parties? So there's this kind of there's this issue of here of how are you supposed to apply this doctrine when we have this second written instrument that's coming into the fray that we're going to be using to determine what the terms of the contract are, right? So I could see how, okay, if you did the smart contract without a written contract, then maybe you could apply the parole evidence rule to just say the terms of the smart contract were the terms and we're only going to do that. And therefore, because it went through, we're not going to change it, right? I could see that. But also, if you have the written contract down, then there's some tension there between which one we're actually going to apply. So I think that the parole evidence rule might need to be updated or some exception or some new rule might need to come in to determine how we're going to handle these these conflicts between the terms of the smart contract and the terms of the written contract. And would that be something that could be based in libertarian legal theory itself? Or is that something that should just be set up uh, by contract when you when you contract with your legal institution who will resolve disputes for you and you'll say, if I use a smart contract, then this will be the rules of how we figure out what the terms are. I don't exactly know how that would play out 
but it's definitely an important issue that I think needs to be worked on in the future if we're going to make our uh, title transfer theory more robust in the application to smart contracts. The second doctrine that I want to bring up is something called the statute of frauds, and we haven't we haven't talked about this yet um, in our in our podcast. And the statute of frauds it's a bit of a misnomer because it's not really a statute; it's a it's a it's a common law doctrine. But basically, what the statute of fraud says is that there are certain types of contracts which need to be written down, and so uh, one of them is sales for land. The court says that we will not enforce a sale for land unless the contract is written down. One of them is sales of goods over $500, uh, so, something along those, and there's a few others. So the question is there is that would the term, would the smart contract, the code of the smart contract, would that be sufficient to be considered a written instrument for the contract? And so would that meet? the statute of frauds requirement if we're transferring something which would require um, a written document in order for the courts to enforce it? Or would that not be sufficient and would the courts then, should they or would they then require a separate, a separate written contract and not consider the, the computer code uh, sufficient as a written instrument? And that would also uh, that also kind of ties into the parole evidence rule issue because it's like if in the statute of frauds if they don't consider the code a written document then that might solve some of the issues of of the conflict between the terms of the the terms of the smart contract and the terms of the written contract. But uh, and so this is just an interesting issue for uh, the legal system to kind of deal with. How are you going to apply this this doctrine to this setting? And also I will say that I don't necessarily know whether or not the statute of frauds would be something which would apply in a libertarian legal system. I think that maybe it wouldn't be. Um, I think maybe more than likely it wouldn't be just because, you know, freedom of contract is something we believe in. So, you know, maybe, again, when you when you contract with your conflict resolution agency, you might say, I agree that if I do some kind of deal, you know, for a good of over $500 or if I were to sell my land, you know, or something like that, that I would do that in writing just because, you know, the, the court system wants that kind of practicality there and it makes it easier for the court system to resolve those disputes if there's that document there. You know, that might be something you contractually, contractually agree to when, when you sign up with a dispute resolution organization. So I think that might practically be something that, that we could have um, come in, but I, I don't know if it would necessarily be based in the libertarian legal theory as such, which would undergird the the underlying, you know, contracting with the uh, with the dispute resolution organizations at the outset. And then, lastly, the last thing I'll say is that um, basically, in contract law, there are certain default rules that people go into. So, if there is ambiguity in a contract or something along those lines, or if the parties forgot to uh, put something into a contract. Then the, then the law will say that there are basically a default rule which we will inject into the contract in order to fill the space, um, in order to apply the contract and then to apply the intent of the contracting parties in order to fill the gaps so that the entire contract isn't thrown out of the window. So as long as the intent of the parties can still be enforced, then, then these default rules will be put into place to fill the gaps of ambiguity or incompleteness, which are, you know, inherent in, in human life. And so I just, I just suggest at the end of the paper that future work might be needed in order to figure out what kind of default rules 
uh, should be applied to the smart contract context. What types of them? What should the rules be? Um, should they be based in the legal the 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 contract the uh, the legal theory as such, or should it be something that's assented to by a contract? Um, so it's a more practical thing. Um, again, I just say this this whole section is just uh, suggestions for future research. They're not things I have clear answers on, but they're important important issues moving forward that we need to think about. So that is all that I have on that. So uh, Strati, do you have anything else you'd like to point out or say before we uh, wrap it up? I do not. All right. Well, uh, I guess uh, with that, we'll kind of turn it in for today. I hope that this has been illuminating for a lot of people. And I hope, uh, you know, for people both who are into smart contracts, blockchain, people who are very knowledgeable about it, or people who are not very knowledgeable about it, you know, I think that this is something that, especially now, uh, which with everything that's going on with, with our economy becoming going into hyperdrive mode toward digital economy and, and working from home and doing deals online and other kind of things like that. You know, this is obviously, I think, the future of the economy. And so all of these questions of how to deal with this, this technology and doing deals with each other on this way and how the law is going to handle it, uh, these are really, really, really important issues that we're going to be dealing with. So I think this is something that everybody needs to, uh, to deal with and think about and uh, and, you know, if, if anybody listening has any thoughts on it, email the podcast, lawoflibertypodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on uh, Twitter at lawoflibertypod. And with that, uh, Stratty, I'll turn it over to you. You got any plugs or uh, anything you want to say? Cot Report's no longer around, so. Oh, yeah, I'm really gotta, sad about that. Got to find a new place to send my writing to. But, yeah, just check out the Insurrection Inc. podcast. Yeah, for sure. Oh, I will mention, though, that even though the Cotton Report is now defunct, I wrote a short article on this exact topic that we've been talking about today. I basically just summarize my paper in a brief article. And so if somebody doesn't want to read the full paper, um, you can read that article on Cotton Report. And I'll, I'll link to that, too, in our uh, show description. And there's a link. There's a link to the full paper on that page. Uh, but I guess with that, we'll call it in. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Stratty? Thank y'all. All right, everybody. This has been the fifth episode of the Law of Liberty podcast. And we will talk to you all again soon.